Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Before we get to the episode this week, blatant, unabashed self-promotion. I got a new book coming out. It's called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. It's a how to meditate book. But it's also got a, a story. It's um, it's the story of me and one of my favorite meditation teachers, Jeff Warren, going cross country in a stupid orange bus, meeting people who want to meditate but aren't, and really helping you know create a, a taxonomy of reasons why people aren't meditating, and uh, then throwing a bunch of practical advice at people about how they can get over these various obstacles, like not finding the time or feeling like they can't, you can't clear your mind, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I'm really happy about the book, really proud of it. comes out the day after Christmas in time for a new year, new you, and you can get it on pre-order now. So shameless self-promotion out of the way. Let's get to the episode this week, Leslie Booker. I met Leslie Booker in an elevator a few months ago on the way up to a book party for Sharon Salzberg, who's a a, a famous meditation teacher, and Leslie was uh, standing next to me. By the way, I I call her Leslie, but she goes by Booker, even even though that's her last name. So Booker was standing next to me and dropped an F-bomb, I think, in conversation with somebody else, and I was like, who is this person? So we got to talking, and turns out she's a really interesting yoga and meditation teacher. She's done a lot of work with incarcerated youth. Um, and uh, on a lots of other fascinating issues, all of which you're about to hear about. Uh, so here she is, Booker. Why do you go by Booker <laughs> instead of Leslie? That is a great place to start. Yeah. So people have always called me Booker as a nickname throughout my life in high school, and it was never something that I really was really attached to one way or the other. It's kind of simultaneously informal and formal? Yeah, 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 totally. So, it, you know, I thought it was something cute. And then when I was um, I was in the fashion industry for about eight, nine years here in New York City. And what? I was a wardrobe stylist. Nice. So I dressed models for a living. <laughs> it's a really weird job. <laughs> in retrospect, it's a really strange job to dress giant Barbie dolls. Were they know? nice? They were amazing. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and really my transformation into the work that I do now. But um, so I was wanting to transition out of that industry, uh, went to nutrition school, and um, I realized very soon on that I couldn't keep doing this fashion thing full-time, and so I found a part-time job at the New York Open Center. What is that? The New York Open Center is a uh, an urban, holistic, spiritual center, sort of like Omega or Esalon or um, any of those institutions, but in New York City. So That's all of those lots teachers. Lots of weirdos. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> And so when I got there, I but thought, why hey. would you go there? Why, what, why, why did you want to get a job there? I mean, there's a second job. Yeah. So it, you were already into this stuff. I was years before I got in my certification of foot reflexology, because when I first started working in the foot fashion, reflexology. Oh yeah. You were like okay, like dealing with other strangers. I'm really feet. into feet. It's really fine. yeah. It's totally fine. Okay. Yeah. All right. So. We're going to focus, right, Dan? No, no, no. I know this is a meditation podcast, but I reserve the right to take you down whatever tributary I want. All right. So I knew you. So you have no guarantees here. This is this is what I've been told. (laughs) All right, carry on. So you're you're dealing with models, foot reflexologies in your Mm -hmm. past, and now you're like, I'm going to add the open center into my mix. Yeah, I needed to do something that allowed me to have some flexibility in my schedule, and also allowed me to kind of move into this world a little bit more, and so. Um, when I got there, I said, hey, my name's Leslie. And they said, we already have one. 
And I was like, I don't know what you mean. And they said, we already have a Leslie. What other name do you want to go by? And so I was like, well, I guess you can call me Booker. And during that time is when I met Sharon Salzberg and I met like a lot of like my friends and colleagues and teachers. And so um, Booker sort of stuck and I tried to break out of it. And people were like, well, that's who you are. (laughs) And a dear friend of mine said that uh, Booker is a woman who's getting done in the world. And Leslie is the one he can like bake you cookies. And I'm happy to do both. I will bake you some cookies, some gluten-free cookies, and then we will go out and get done in the world. So both names feel very appropriate for me. Yeah. I mean, like uh, when I met, I met you in an elevator uh-huh. uh, going up to some fancy apartment to go to a book party for Sharon Salzberg. Mm-hmm. And you introduced, first of all, you used it. You dropped an f bomb, which I was like, "Who's this person dropping an f bomb in, in the, the elevator?" elevator? Right yeah, there? which oh. I liked. No, in a, in a good way. I was like, "All right, I like this person." But we had never met. I didn't know you. And then you, we started talking, and you introduced yourself as Booker. I was like, "That's a cool name." <laughs> Got to get her on my show. Yeah, exactly. That, in fact, that was one of the first things I said to you. I like tried to. I kind of squeezed your uh, resume out of you, and I was like, "Oh, this person's a teacher. Get on the show." Yeah. <laughs> I've been bugging you ever since. Because that book party was a while ago. It was like July. Yeah. June, July. Yeah. Well, let me just start, though, because you gave us a little bit of your backstory. But can you just tell me a little bit how you got into meditation to start with? And then I, and then in terms of Busy Summer, you were specifically referencing stuff that we've seen in, like, Charlottesville and um, in Washington. And you're intimately involved in the kind of bringing meditative principles to all that. So we definitely mm-hmm. want to get into all that. But first, so for context, can you just describe how you got into meditation in the first place? Yeah. So I was working at the New York Open Center. Right. As Booker. <laughs> yep. As Booker. And I met my first mentor there, uh, an amazing human named Stan Greer. And he just really took me under his wing, you know, right away. And um he was working for the Lineage Project, and he really wanted me to work with Lineage Project, so teaching yoga and meditation to incarcerated and system-involved youth. At the time, I wasn't a yoga teacher, didn't know anything about meditation, but he kept kind of nagging at me. And he You were not a yoga teacher. I was not a yoga so teacher you, at the you, time. What did, you have, what, what did you have to offer in this situation? I was a random person who had been working in the fashion industry for a long time and was trying to find um, a different way of living my life. Huh. You know, he clearly saw something in you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's complete bodhisattva, just a really amazing human. Define that for people who may not know what it yeah, means. Yeah, so bodhisattva is one who chooses to um, live their life over and over and over again for the liberation of all beings. Um, and so he was just like this angel, you know, on this earth, just like kind of guiding um, my life. And so... We would talk a lot about nutrition and yoga and meditation because I was kind of dipping into that world a little bit, but didn't have a lot of information around it. And he invited me to the New York Open Center. I'm sorry, to the New York Insight. Which is another center in downtown Manhattan yeah, where they teach meditation. Yeah, yes. amazing, beautiful center. And uh, it was a people of color and allies potluck. And he took me to who is now my teacher, Gina Sharp. And he was like, Gina, Booker, Booker, Gina. And just like walked away. Huh. <laughs> and that was you know, close to 15 years ago. And, so Gina uh, Sharp then became your main meditation teacher. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she's still my teacher. She's I'm doing my four-year retreat teacher training right now, and so she's, um, you know, our guiding teacher in that as well. So it's a four-year process during which you become trained to be somebody who can teach retreats. Yes. And I just completed a two-and-a-half-year training to be a community Dharma leader. What does that mean? So a community Dharma leader is somebody who is teaching meditation in centers like New York Insight, 
from around the country. You can have, you know, you can rent, start your own groups, your own sanghas, um, work in a center, take the practice, you know, anywhere within your community. And and after, is, was it Stan? Mm-hmm. Is Stan did, so after that, you also got into yoga, too? It kept, happened very simultaneously. It was happening kind of at the same time. And so I came to both practices so they kind of mingled and integrated and intersected with each other. And so I always taught yoga through the lens of the Dharma and taught Dharma through the body. And it's so funny because we're so caught up in mindfulness, 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 and we kind of forget about the rest of the body. It becomes this neck up practice. And so I'm really, I told Jack Kornfield that my intention for the next four years is to bring the Dharma back to the body. I, you know, I think there's <laughs> something, to, really think there's something to that on a bunch of levels. And in fact, I... I've always hated yoga, mm-hmm. and I wrote about this in my book that, that um, when I was a little kid, my parents were hippies, and, and they, they're not hippies anymore, but they, oh, they, they have a little bit of that spirit. Um, <laughs> they sent me to a yoga class, and the teacher made me take off my tough skin pants and do <laughs> yoga and, and like my uh, tidy whities So I have had a bad attitude about yoga ever since then. Yoga trauma is a thing. Yoga trauma? Oh, yeah. Really? It's, it's a thing. Okay, Absolutely. Well, I definitely have it. <laughs> and I, but I have this... Badass trainer. Her name is Jade Alexis. Google her; she's amazing. And she, I, I, uh, I met her because she did. She was teaching spin. This is going to make me sound incredibly bougie, but whatever. I was going to a spin <laughs> class and at my gym, and there was this incredible woman at the front who was just. She would come around and get in your face and they turn up your resistance on your bike, and I hated her, <laughs> but I loved her. And but I thought I was scared of her. Uh-huh. And so one day I actually got the courage up to talk to her because my. Um, Wife at the time just had had her, uh, had had our child and she wanted a trainer, and so I said, "Would you be willing to work with my wife?" And it turns out actually when she wasn't screaming at you about the bike, she was like really beautiful, <laughs> nice person, and so she ended up working with my wife as a trainer. But then I got in on, it, so now I I see her once in a while. We she like beats the crap out of me. She's also a former Golden Gloves boxer, and so really? yeah, she's been teaching us how to box. She this woman is amazing. Anyway. She is a yoga teacher, like a serious, serious yoga teacher, and only because of somebody like her who's tough and serious and who scares me, I was I willing to do yoga. And I've found that it makes a big difference. It may, if you're uncomfortable while you're, first of all, on a couple levels, if you're uncomfortable while you're meditating um, unnecessarily, why, why be uncomfortable unnecessarily? It can, Absolutely. It can create some kind of calm and relaxation in order to meditate. And also, yeah, we are we, we lug around our bodies mm-hmm. as if we're not connected to them. Yeah. And uh, I can see, after a lifelong resistance, how the two can intermingle. So now I've said a lot, even though you're the person who's <laughs> supposed to be being interviewed today. The long way of saying I think you're on to something. Uh, yeah. Oh, the Buddha, well, you know, the first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of body. And we keep forgetting that it is the first thing that he taught. And we kind of like skip over that and go to the third and fourth foundation. We're really talking about the mind. And so we really have to get that body sorted first and the breath, really knowing where we are before we can move into the investigation, into the the mindfulness practice. So can you describe what the four foundations of mindfulness are? Because I don't know that most people will know what that is. Yeah. So the four foundations of mindfulness are sort of, um, you know, the basics of Buddhism. So the first foundation is mindfulness of breath and body. So knowing where the body is, knowing how the breath is, if it's you know, breathing deeply, if you're deep breathing shallowly, and just really gives you a lot of information, a lot of intuition. So you really know what's happening both internally and externally with your body and, and your breath. 
The second foundation is working with um, Vedna, which is the feeling tones. So knowing if there is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral happening in the body. The third foundation. Well, that, that, you know, Vedna mm-hmm. is like it's, like, it's easy to write off that because it's a foreign sounding word and then mm-hmm. feeling tones sounds kind of yeah. fluffy, maybe out of a <laughs> self-help book. But actually, it speaks to our habitual ways of interacting with the world. Mm-hmm. We either... It's either pleasant, meaning we want it, mm-hmm. unpleasant, we don't want it, or neutral, we don't care. Yeah. And actually, mindfulness is a fourth way of just of actually just being present with whatever's there, non-judgmentally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, just noticing if something's pleasant, we reach for it, we want more. We're grasping, we're clinging, we're Grabby. really attaching yes. ourselves to it, right? And if something is something that we don't like, like your spin teacher, see how I'm bringing it back down? Yeah. You see nice. that? Okay. So the, <laughs> there's like that aversion, that pushing away. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. And then when we're in neutral, we don't even notice what's happening. And neutrality is such a beautiful place to be in. But we're so used to these very these extremes. I love it. I want it. I hate it. I want it to go away. So being in this place of neutrality is a really yummy, juicy place to to be in. And the second we notice that we're in neutral, it's like, I love this. And it turns into pleasant. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a tricky little tricky little bugger there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the third foundation of mindfulness. So the third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of, um, of thoughts, of really understanding, like, the attitude of what's going on. Um, that's, that was always something that's kind of tricky for me. I didn't quite understand what that meant. And recently, uh, my friend Vinny Ferraro said, were you okay? Are you okay? Will you be okay? Mm. So just kind of like checking in with the attitude. Like, this is unpleasant, but I can, but I can stay here. You know, I'm not dying. I can be here. It's okay for right now. Then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is when we really get into all the list. You know, the three poisons, the four hindrances, the five hindrances, and all of these things where we really begin to like to do a lot of the investigation. So the Buddha... I mean, you know, you know this better than I do. Was a little bit OCD. Made a lot of lists. <laughs> a lot of lists. You know, the seven factors of enlightenment, the five hindrances, mm-hmm. all. Ba- uh, but the, and they, again, they sound a little froofy when, uh, like, out of a fortune cookie or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, when you say them aloud in casual conversation. But these lists are meticulously crafted, kind of like the periodic table of the mind in some way. That's a cool way of putting it, and I want to admit that <laughs> I did not make that up. I saw that from Dr. Mark Epstein, a friend of mine. But they were really categorized the way we think and feel about things, the way mm. we react to stimuli. And so the fourth foundation is to use those lists to investigate our own experience. Yeah, and it's awesome because you are like – it helps you to investigate your own crazy like, wait, what's going on? It's like, oh, I'm just doing that thing again where I push away, or I'm doing that thing again where I'm in delusion, or I'm doing that thing again where I. So it's really useful to help us to keep us from spinning out. It gives us a place to land and to understand where we are and where that's coming from and to see our habitual habits. But your you're, yeah, habitual habits, right? <laughs> I do that all the time. Um, the... the, the but your point was that that we we tend to skip over, especially like those of us who are like into Buddhism and we want to go as deep as possible. We skip over mm-hmm. the body and the breath, which is the most obvious stuff. That's where all the information is. It's all in the body and the breath. And you think this is kind of just endemic to our culture? Oh yeah, we're disconnected from our bodies. Absolutely, absolutely. I um I moved away from New York recently after eighteen years, and I'm just fascinated Where'd when you I go? come back. I live nomadically. What? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Put a pin in that. We'll I want to come back that. to that. But c- c- carry on. Um, but I'm always amazed when I'm walking down the sidewalk and 
nine out of 10 people are walking on the sidewalk looking down and texting. If you're on the subway, everybody will have headphones on. 90% of the people at least on the subway are having headphones on completely um, shutting themselves out from humanity, from life around them. And I think it's such a shame and I moved to New York in the late 90s and before all this was going on, and it was just so alive and vibrant. And um, I feel people are just so shut down. We're not paying attention to what's happening. People need support or help or asking you a question. We don't. It's just not on our radar to, to take care of them, to look out, to how, listen. How do you uh, – the idea of, you know – Getting out of your head and into your body sounds good to people, but how do you actually do that? Mm. And it's complex, too. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of trauma, you know, that folks are living with, whether it be historical trauma or developmental trauma. And so being inside one's body isn't always the safest feeling place for folks. Say more about Um, why why not? Because when folks have experienced trauma to the body, it's because... um, there oh, you mean been, if they've been physically abused? Yeah, for example. Yeah, and so there's been like a, a a dissociation, a non-trusting of the body. And so sometimes putting that wall up and putting the body over here and me over here creates a really safe environment for me to live in. And so, you know, that's something when we're teaching to really be mindful of, of, of you know, what might be happening in somebody's body. Yeah. And to keep it really basic, you know, being mindful of the body is just knowing where the feet are. Like when you're sitting down, do you know that your feet are resting on the earth below you? Do you know that your your sits bones are connecting to the earth? Can you feel that? So just really knowing where your body is in space. Do you know where your hands are? Now, is your body leaning forward? Is it leaning back? So just really simple things like that can begin to bring mindfulness to our body. Especially when we are jumping out of the body, we're jumping into a reaction, coming back to the body and being like, okay, but where are my feet right now? And that could help when you're in a difficult situation. Absolutely. If you're being interviewed by somebody. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Especially if he won't let you finish a damn thing. <laughs> it's horrible. I'm just grounding down. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, for real, I mean, you know, it is, it is. Um, you know, even if you, as you're saying that, I realize that my posture was her- ter- terrible at that moment. And but there's a way in which actually, if you sit with some composure mm-hmm. and you're connected to it, you're much, you are literally less likely to be to float off like a, a, a headless balloon. Yes, they say that the the psyche follows the body. So if the body is at ease, then the mind is at ease. If the body is agitated and disconnected, then so is the mind. And so I often, you know, especially doing all the million things that I do, I'm always like saying, but where is my body right now? Like, can I stay present right now? And, and back to your biography, when you, so you went from, a, like a, I guess, a reasonably conventional career or fashion, right? People know <laughs> what that is, um, to like off the deep end, full-on yoga, meditation, <laughs> teacher, trainee. What did your friends and family, were they were they surprised, alarmed? What was the reaction? My parents have never quite understood what I do for a living, even working in the fashion industry. I'm like, I'm a stylist. They're like, you do hair? I'm like, no, I, I dress models. And that was still confusing. Where, where did you grow up? In Northern Virginia and Japan. What? 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you have a great story. <laughs> All right. Why Northern Virginia? Were you, was your family in the military? Yeah, my dad okay. was in the Navy. Okay. Yeah. And so they're still kind of mister, mystified and befuddled by what you're doing now? My parents are happy that I'm living a spiritual life. Oh, they are? You know, yeah, I grew up Baptist and... Um, you know, being a Black American, uh, the Baptist Church is the foundation um, of my of my life and my family, and my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents, etc. Um, my parents live in a small town called Ivy, Virginia, and the church they go to is the church that my grandparents, great grandparents, everyone was baptized in, married in, funeralized in. So we have deep roots in the Baptist Church. And so when I left the church when I was twelve years old, um, there is a lot of angst around me not having a spiritual life, something to land, to land me. And so when I came around to Buddhism, they were pretty happy. They don't get it. <laughs> my mom actually came to my very first Dharma talk at New York Insight, which was very sweet. She happened to be visiting and I was like, hey, I'm teaching. Do you want to come? And it was sweet. She was like, I believe everything you say, as if I was going to go up and like spout a bunch of lies or something. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, like Dharma means it's the truth. And she was like, oh, okay. So why did you leave the church when you were 12? Because uh, of homophobia. You know, really? I was hearing a lot of, from the pulpit, I was hearing a lot of homophobia, a lot of racism, a lot of hatred. And at home, my parents were saying, don't listen to that, listen to us. And my parents would always say, does it matter? Like, who you love, you know, as long as someone like respects you and takes care of you. And um, so I was getting two different messages and I was like, adults need to get it together. Until you do, I'm going to leave the church because it's not resonating with me. And it was a predominantly black church and you were hearing racism? Yeah. Against? Against anyone who wasn't black. <laughs> really? Yeah, it can happen. No, I know it can happen. I, I mean, I just, maybe racism isn't the right from, word, from but pulpit. definitely, yeah. You know, and the thing is, I've met amazing ministers and clergy, archbishops. I have done my activism has um, always been connected with um, spiritual leaders. And so I love ministers, preachers. I, I surround myself with them. But there's a few bad eggs out there. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's what I was uh, predominantly exposed to. And so um, I'm really grateful that the kind of parents who could listen to me and respect um, my views and the way that I wanted to live life. So, yeah, so I left the church at 12. It's heavy. Mm. Um, I'm glad your parents were cool about it. It sounds like they're, even if even if they don't fully understand what you're up to now, at least they support it. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I want to talk about your activism, mm. but I can't leave alone the fact that you live a nomadic lifestyle. Oh, yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> Are you like a Tibetan sheep herder or what? what <laughs> yes, <is> I am. <laughs> It, uh, it happened very organically. I have a few friends who are also on this path and live nomadically, have been for many years, and I never got it. I was like, I could never do that. I'm a Taurus. I love a beautiful home. Like, I was the person with the big apartment. It would have dinner parties, and I would, you know, host friends and let people stay with me for months at a time. And, um, yeah, it just uh, it happened very slowly where I was assisting and offering movement more and more on retreats. Assisting and offering movement. Yeah, so um, assisting the lead Dharma teachers uh -huh. and then offering mindful movement on meditation retreats. Gotcha. So teaching yoga to the retreat. Mindful that... movement, Dan. Oh, what's the <laughs> <laughs> I think that yoga has such a stigma about it. And okay. people think of yoga like having a yoga butt and Lululemon and yeah, this yeah, and yeah. that. And mindful movement is really this integration of Dharma 
into so Dharma meaning like the Buddhist teachings into movement practice. Anybody can do it, in other words. Sure. <laughs> well, it's not like yoga. Oh, it's accessible. Yes, yeah, yes. absolutely. So it's accessible. Not to anybody everybody. can teach it, but anybody yes. can do it. Like it's right, yeah, less intimidating. Absolutely. So it's accessible to all body types. It's um, trauma informed. Um, and it's something that, yeah, hopefully everyone can can explore and experience. And it's a really great support to have movement while you're on retreat. Again, to allow the body to, like, ground, to stretch, to have some space before you get back on the cushion. 100%. As I've you done know. it on yeah. retreat. Yeah, and it's great. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, so no, no, being a nomad. So you were, yes. you, were, you were throwing dinner parties and you were living <laughs> conventional, like, home uh, owner or home resident rental uh, yeah. person lifestyle. And then you gave it all up. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I uh, was just looking at my my life had been just a lot of leaving town, being on a retreat, um, traveling, speaking at conferences across the country. Um, and when 2017 hit, I just started a new relationship in December. And uh, she lives in Connecticut. And so we were looking at our calendars trying to figure out when we can see each other and I realized that I was going to be gone about seven months this year. Wow. And so between being gone and, and also spending my my home time with her, I was like, why am I living in New York anymore? So I gave up my home in February. So how does that work? How do you, what, <laughs> how do you, you know, like, where are you staying tonight? I'm leaving here. I'm going back up to Hartford, Connecticut to teach at, uh, tomorrow I am teaching at Copper Beach Institute. And so I'll stay on their property tonight, teach there tomorrow, and then I'll go back to Bridgeport, Connecticut to stay with my honey. Then we're back in New York for the weekend. And is it a lot um, of that? Is it stressful to just kind of constantly be planning where you're going to stay? No, I mean, mostly I'm staying at retreat centers. Um, and so these places are places that I've been teaching at, sitting at for years. And so it feels like going home. Um, the thing about being nomadic is every place is your home now. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first... 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% 
or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Where do you keep your stuff? I have most of my stuff is in storage. Some is at my girlfriend's. Uh, some is at my friend Anne's in Washington Heights. And uh, yeah, what I need is in this backpack right here. Are you? Is this at all connected to? We've had on the show the guys from minimalism. Oh yeah, is this at all so connected talking, to that in some way? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a minimalist. Um, I mean, when you travel, you take just what you need, and so there's a few books that I need. Um, if I'm staying on retreat, I have a little tiny uh, Buddha statue that one of the, a yogi made on retreat. So I have a couple little things, um, my little touch points. But yeah, I'm. I'm a minimalist when I travel, but I, my home is always very full and very abundant and a lot of art and a lot of yumminess. And so I definitely will be getting back to that at some point. So it's, you're not going to forever be a nomad? No. <laughs> no, I am not. You know, the, I, it's I, not in my nature. It's not in my nature. I'm such like a home person. I, I love having a home. I was actually sitting, as it turns out, just as a Coincidence. I, with the guys from Minimalism were on the podcast many months ago. Mm-hmm. And then I was actually in the documentary, which, you know, weirdly, they sent a crew to my office to interview me. I had no idea what I was going to do. And I, I was convinced nobody was ever going to see it. And then that documentary just went crazy <laughs> on Netflix. Um, and actually, they're not uh, minimalism. Their version of minimalism isn't like anti having any stuff it's just like the stuff you have should mean something to you absolutely. and give you pleasure absolutely so it's been really interesting because i i had the whole floor of a brownstone which is you know it's, it's a lot of space in new york city yeah and i had a deck and a backyard and the whole shebang and um you know what i actually used in my apartment were like the same five books the same two pans the same you know i wasn't utilizing all the the stuff that I had. Like, I loved it. It reminded me of where I had traveled and where I had been. But um, it's not necessary. Try doing that with a (laughs) two-year-old. My son is a maximalist. He wants every car ever made. All All the stuff. Yes. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Um, So so activism. Mm -hmm. uh, When did that become a part of your practice? And is that a fair way to say, say it, that it's part of your practice? Yeah, I would say that. You know, one of the critiques, and I don't know if we haven't, you know, we're actually getting to know each other now, but one of the critiques I've heard of modern mindfulness is that it is in some ways something kind of private and can be even like solipsistic and self-indulgent, something that people do on their own and disconnected from larger social problems. That's a that's a critique. I'm not sure if I know enough to fully agree with it or, or agree with it. But is, is that your view? And are you kind of trying to introduce something um, – different into the mix or how, how do you approach all of this? I mean, I'm not introducing anything. These are the, the Buddhist teachings. Like he spoke about engaging in life. You know, a lot of the Pali Canon, which are his teachings, are all about being in relationship and being relational with others around you. And so, um, you know, the Buddhist, for some people, they think that the Buddha was, was an activist himself, you know, speaking to all people, all different caste. Um, it took a while, but you know, allowing um, a monastic yeah. order yeah. that was that was you know women, bikinis, nuns, um, which is something that no one else was doing at that time, and so um, a lot of folks do consider him to be um, an activist. 
And was your was activism for you something that you were doing when you were in fashion, or did you have a, a more of a political awakening when you got into the practice? I was not a fashion activist. Really? Yeah. Gotcha. So yeah. what happened that that made you kind of engage in this way? Yeah. Well, I was a pre-activist before the fashion industry. So in my late teens, early twenties, I was uh, involved with activism. I was, you know, grew up in, um, I was living in the D.C. area. And so, you know, really interested in women's rights and going to marches and like screaming and yelling and shouting and not listening to anyone, shouting folks down if they, if they didn't agree with what I was saying. Uh. So I kind of walked around with my eyes closed, my ears closed, my mouth wide open, uh. which turns out didn't serve anyone. <laughs> no one was listening to me and I wasn't listening to myself. And I completely burnt myself out very, very quickly. And so... I kind of joke around, but I, I literally like ran away to the fashion industry because so I was like, I don't have to worry about it. Like, no one cares. People just want to be pretty. And so it was this way of kind of like healing myself from just kind of, yeah. And um, but being in the fashion industry and spending a lot of time, there's a lot of one on one time with folks, especially the models or, you know, our team. And so just listening to a lot of people suffering, you know, and hearing a lot of people um not being very happy and not really knowing what the way out was. And so being in the fashion industry made me want to investigate, well, who is happy? How how do we alleviate the suffering, which led me to Buddhism? And when I got there and I began to go deep into my practice, my movement practice, my, my Dharma practice, I found that this fire, you know, of like, hearing voices that were typically not listened to, acknowledging seeing people who were typically not seen, this fire of walking next to hearing their story started to really come back up in my body again. And um, soon after, I started working in jails with, with youth and working with folks who were experiencing homelessness, women who were living with addiction. And then that kind of just deepened my my passion towards uh, this work again, to getting back into activism and it's weird for me to say activism because it's it doesn't feel like the the um the classic way we think of an activist um sometimes it looks like that sometimes i'm holding a sign and i'm marching and i'm pumping my fist you know and a lot of times i'm I'm preparing folks to go out into action or i am supporting folks in doing the hard work i'm interested in what you said before about how you were doing a lot of shouting and not a lot of listening Mm -hmm. has that changed (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I realize that if we listen to each other, a lot of us are having the same needs. We're having the same needs, but we're just coming from it from two different angles. So when we actually come together and engage in dialogue and in relationship, then we can actually come to some sort of agreement as opposed to you're screaming, I'm screaming, and we're screaming, and no one can hear each other. And so for me, it's, it's really about shutting my mouth, opening up my ears, and, and listening very deeply. So you, you're able to, like, listen to folks at this point who you, with whom you disagree deeply? I don't know who those people might be. I can take some guesses. <laughs> uh, and are you find in those situations, like, either whether you're at the barricades or whether you're, uh, I don't know, reading the media, you're able to, you know, sit and, like, hear what folks have to say who disagree with you? I'm a human, <laughs> so I definitely have strong f- 
feelings that arise, but it does give me more space to listen. And I grew up with a father who loved Ronald Reagan. And so I had a lot of practice as a child <laughs> of listening to views I didn't always agree with. But I, you know, again, with my family, they allowed me to like voice my, my views very strongly. And so um, a lot of that was listening and then be like, yeah, I hear you. And also here's my side. And so I think that there's a lot of practice. Do you think there's me. enough of that in the circles in which you move of like being willing to listen? In the circles in which I move? I'm, I'm going to guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to guess left-leaning circles. I would say that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, do you feel, because some of the, some of the criticism at the left of late has been, you know, this really dogmatic political correctness that can, yes. that can, that can shut out other viewpoints. In fact, next week I'm following this kid whose name I'm forgetting, the guy, uh, the, the guy who just provoked riots at Berkeley. Why I'm forgetting this person's mm-hmm. name, but he's a popular podcaster, conservative, mm-hmm. wears a yarmulke, um, has taken a lot of heat from the alt-right, you, even though he is a conservative and is, he is anti-Trump. But he went to Berkeley recently to give a speech to a small group of conservatives, and um, they basically got to shut the town down because of this this kid was coming. To, he's in his early 30s, not, you know. Um, anyway, he mm-hmm. the, the, the criticism in the wake of the incident at Berkeley was, first of all, you give much more attention when you threaten so much violence that the police have to basically shut the place down in mm. order to make it secure. Uh, but second, why not just hear what the person has to say? Um, I don't know. I'm not taking a view on any of this, but I'm just curious. Yeah, there's something called predatory listening. Huh. What does that mean? Predatory listening is people who will listen to what you say, and then if there is one thing out of ten they don't agree with, they will attack that thing in disregard all the other nine. You know, the ninety percent of things that were actually in alignment with them. And I, and it's something that's happening with a lot of, you know, of, of these left-wing, you know, younger folks. Yeah. I don't want to say younger folks. I mean, it's happening with a lot of folks who are like, I am right. There's nothing you can say. And they're always waiting for someone to harm them. Right. Well, you know how that yeah. feels, right? I mean, you were, you were that person for a while, it sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. you're kind of uniquely situated to be an interesting voice in this mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's something that I am... Um, you know, and working with so many different population uh, populations and having so many different uh, colleagues that I that I do work with, um, it's interesting to see how we hear things through our lens, depending on our age, our gender expression, our identity, our race. It, it's just so many of it is filtered through these lenses, and so it's really interesting to sit next to a friend, hear the exact same conversation, and hear it two different ways. Right. So it's been, you know, a really big part of um, my teaching, my listening, my training, um, my mentoring is to, you know, reflect back and to really listen deeply to folks. Well, what's interesting that you bring to the table, aside from the passion, is the Dharma, mm-hmm. you know, which does teach in the end that we are all equal. Um, and 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 <laughs> in that we all have, um, you know, we are all sentient beings. Let's we are all say. sentient beings. Yes. We're so all sentient beings who the right have, word. yeah, who have different access and our different access based on again our gender, our race, our age. Um, that's what makes. 
the difference. So this whole like kumbaya, we are all one. I'm like, yes, and also if I were a white man, I'd have a very different life than I do as a black woman. Unquestionably. Yeah. Unquestionably. Yeah. But just talk uh, talk a little bit about how the Dharma has changed how you show up in this in in these activist situations, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I had completely stepped away from activism for years, and it wasn't until Occupy Wall Street that I was able to step back into it. I was doing another training through Spirit Rock, the Mindful Yoga and Meditation training, so I was deeply in my practice, and I came back to New York, and um, Occupy had just started. And I was going to the park every day. I felt so drawn to this movement, and I didn't want to jump in and start screaming and yelling. (laughs) I really wanted to figure out what was going on, what were the views, who were the players, what their viewpoints were. And so I spent, um, you know, I went to the park every single day for hours and met people, went to different trainings, a lot of teach-ins were happening, sat in with different working groups and find out, you know, to find out how they were doing their work. And I was hearing a lot that people were exhausted and tired, and there's so much energy in their bodies, but they weren't resting well, they weren't, um, they weren't eating well. They were just going, 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 going. And so I started asking people, you know, about what they were doing, like how were they taking care of themselves? And no one was taking care of themselves. And um, actually Sharon Salzberg comes into this. I was so I reached out to a lot of the different sanghas in New York City, and I said, hey, like, let's gather all of our resources together and have a big sit in Zuccotti Park. And this was still very early on, so there wasn't the park wasn't completely full yet. So we were able to collectively grab about 75 people from all the different sanghas in New York City and to have a sit in the park. And I didn't want to be a weirdo who was just sitting there being silent and ignoring what was going on around us, because that to me was just not what we wanted to do. It wasn't about shutting down. It was about actually being really awake to what was happening. And so we had a group of folks who were meditating, a group of folks who had posters, and then a group of folks that were talking to people about what we were doing. And after we finished um, that day, people said, that was amazing. Can you come back and do it every day? Mm. And I was like, yeah, of course. Like having no clue how I was going to do that. Um, And simultaneously, I was at a community center called Charlotte's Place, which was owned by Trinity Wall Street. Sharon Salzberg had gotten me a part-time job there um, during the same time. And Sharon was doing a talk there, and somebody was telling Sharon what they were going through. And I see Sharon point to me. (laughs) And the person came over to me, and she said, Sharon said you could help me. (laughs) And so we sat down, and we talked for two hours about, you know, her exhaustion and this fear of saying that she was burnt out, this fear of saying that um, she needed to sleep, you know, fear of saying she needed to step out of the park for a little bit. Um, she was, the information she was given, the story she had been told is that to be down with this movement, you had to be a martyr. You had to harm yourself in order to show how committed you were to the cause. And so we spoke for two hours. Um, I took notes and, and then, um, Soon after, I started the meditation working group of Occupy Wall Street with some other friends. So there was a group of us who started this, and we would sit in Zuccotti Park every day and offer metta. And then people started. So metta, metta, yes. 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 <laughs> so metta is one of the four Brahma Viharas, which means best homes to live in. So metta means loving kindness. 
There is Karuna. Karuna, which is compassion. There's mudita, sympathetic joy. Means and taking the counterintuitive act of taking pleasure in other people's success. Yeah, so you get a promotion. Oh my God, I'm so happy for you, and yeah. actually truly meaning it, <laughs> not being like that mother, you know. <laughs> and then the the last one is upeka, which is equanimity, which is kind of this equalizer that doesn't make any of them too sentimental and too sappy. And so we were offering metta, loving kindness in the park. So just wishing well for ourselves and wishing well for even the people that we were, um, you know, the one percenters. So wishing well, and that really gave people some energy. It really buoyed them and gave them a moment to rest. And then we also really began to engage in conversation after we would practice together. And then people wanted to continue to talk and they wanted to move and do more stuff with their bodies because we're sleeping on concrete, you know? The weather was getting colder, and so I started Urban Sangha Project to support the sustainability of frontline change makers. So these were two-hour workshops of mindful yoga, meditation, and compassionate dialogue. And I started these initially just for occupiers, and it lasts for four years. Wow. And so people started hearing about it, so educators started coming in, and social workers, and people who were in law school, who were um, in medical school, every, anyone who's on the front lines who needed to step back and be a human for a minute and to say, I'm tired, I need a rest, and to be in a community of people who also needed to step back and rest. So it became this really beautiful um, community of of people that were on these frontline change makers who were changing the world and also needed a break every now and then. So we were able to, to create that for them. What issues are you engaged in now? What, what's on your radar? What are you What are you thinking about? Oh, you know, for over a decade, I worked with incarcerated youth, and so I'm always so concerned about our young brown and black men. Um, I have a nephew. I have two nephews who are in their 20s, and I live in a constant state of fear for them and for their safety. Um, you know, it's like this this extra level of stress that folks of color move through the world with. Um, I'm going down to uh, the March for Racial Justice. I'm going to be on the rolling retreat with BQ Bodhi. What is that, the rolling what? retreat? Okay. <laughs> I'm like, what is a BQ Bodhi? What is <laughs> BQ Bodhi is... BQ Bodhi is amazing. He's a uh, scholar mm-hmm. and monk. Yes. Yeah, he's a Buddhist scholar and monk. Um, one of my dear teachers, major activist. Um, really amazing, phenomenal human. And so he does these rolling retreats where he gets a bunch of Dharma teachers and some folks, and we get on a bus, and uh, we get on the bus and we go to D.C. and we march. How do you view the events in Charlottesville and subsequently through your specific lens, uh, especially as, uh, you know, the meditative part of it? Yeah, the Charlottesville thing hit home in a really specific way. My, So the church I was telling you about right, in Virginia, Virginia right? it's literally 10 minutes from UVA's campus. So that area, um, I grew up in, my grandparents, you know, lived there. And so that's where I, I spent a lot of time growing up. And my parents, when they retired, moved back to the land that, they, that my mother grew up on. And Charlottesville has always been this southern city where 
blacks and whites, I wouldn't say lived in like tremendous harmony, but there is this there is this living together. There's this living alongside each other that had kind of been historically um, the culture there. And so for something to happen on UVA's campus was really shocking for folks who are familiar with that area. It was also shocking. I'm like, wait, Nazis? Like, like Nazis. Yeah. Like, I, it's so surreal that we're talking about Nazis in 2017 who have websites, <laughs> you know? Like, they're out there openly. And KKK, and they're not KKK. wearing masks. Yeah, they're not in their hoods. It's, it's terrifying, and also, like, yes, they've, of course, they've always been there. Um, I'm not as surprised because, you know, again, as a person of color, like, we see bigotry and hatred um, all the time in these what folks call microaggressions, which I don't think I, they're macroaggressions. They're only microaggressions to those who are saying them, <laughs> to those who are on the receiving end. They are macroaggressions. My eight-year-old niece accused her father and my brother of a microaggression recently. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> when I knew this was getting out of hand. And so, you know, I'm not surprised. And, you know, we are living under an administration that is the embodiment of the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so there is this allowance for this behavior to not be in the shadows, but to come into the light. So I'm not surprised. And, you know, it's scary and it's sad. You know, he, the president, took a lot of heat justifiably when he uh, tried to equate the both sides mm-hmm. and, and then made things worse by saying there were good people among among those uh, out uh supporting the confederate statue because i think if you're either a nazi or a member of the kkk or somebody's willing to carry a torch and march alongside them uh, the questions can be raised by your character um having said all of that um you do see some violence on the left um Mm -hmm. what what is your view on that and and how much of a positive role do you think the dharma can play in terms of um, of being a positive force among the activists with whom you align yourself. Yeah, I think that there is this misconception that those on the left are peaceful and, you know, it's like left versus right. We're all human beings and we were all, there's a lot of fear on both sides. And so there is this way that in this culture, we have been taught to respond or react when we are in fear, and that is to lash out to harm others. And that's happened in the left and on the right. This quote by Audre Lorde like, keeps coming back to me over and over again, which is, um, the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. And so these tools of hatred and greed and harm and oppression we can't do that on our side and expect it inspect to win to overpower like those are the master's tools like we have to find new tools we have to find a new way of approaching the same situation and so you know the, is there a right answer is there a right way of being is there the magic key the magic words the magic teaching that's going to make all of this go away probably not because there are people who are always going to have their ears shut, their eyes shut, and their mouths wide open. And 
I know that I can take care of myself and I can offer tools and practices that can help others take care of themselves. So we can do what, you know, we can work with these tools to support us in, in the way that we can find a better way to work with this. That sounded very roundabout, but. Um, no, I, I was with you. Yeah, and so. I mean, these tools, know, yoga, meditation, can help people do what they want to do more effectively. Mm-hmm. And it's not about sit on your cushion or get onto your yoga mat and practice. It's about really understanding the wisdom practices. Because I think that folks think of mindfulness or meditation as just this, like you were saying earlier, this solitary thing that you do. You don't speak. You don't talk to any, you know, you don't look at anyone, you're sitting on your cushion, you're having this whole internal experience. But when you have that internal experience, it really affects how you relate to the outside world. And then again, if we are investigating the actual teachings of the Dharma, if we're really understanding when we break apart this big lump of anger in our bodies, when we investigate and get curious about it, and we know that, oh, there's actually not just anger, but there's fear and there's sadness and there's not enoughness. And we start to break these down and we can see them in ourselves. We can then begin to see them in others. So hopefully we can connect to the human as opposed to seeing them as our enemy. Right. Well, you are getting dangerously close to oneness there, though, notwithstanding what you said earlier about how, you know, um, that can be a little kumbaya. But the fact of the matter is there is a universality to the human experience. Yeah. Absolutely. And I don't think it's kumbaya at all. It can appear that way depending on how one hears it again, like through the lens that they're hearing it from. Right. 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 Um, But my understanding is that I cannot go into, I cannot live my life with anger in my heart because it does nothing but destroy me. There's this amazing uh, interview when Dave Chappelle came back from a, Africa. The, I don't know where he was, like the continent of Africa. And he came back to speak with an elder to get some advice about what to do. And he spoke with Maya Angelou. <laughs> Have you seen this interview? No. It's amazing. I mean, I'm a rabid Dave Chappelle fan. Rabid. And I'm, I'm very disappointed in myself for having missed this. You should be ashamed of yourself. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, he's the best. So there's this beautiful part in the interview where um, it's on Iconoclast on the Sundance channel. And so Dave Chappelle is talking to Maya Angelou about anger. And he was like, how do you deal with anger? Like you went through the civil rights movement and you saw all your brothers fall, like Malcolm fell and Bobby fell and, you know, like, you know, the Kennedys. Like, how did you deal with Martin dying? Like, how did you deal with all of your friends getting murdered? You know, how did you overcome your anger? And she says, if you're not angry, then you're either stone cold or you're too sick to be angry. So she's like, be angry. You know, get out there. You march it. You write it. You sing it. You vote it. You do everything about it. But when we allow our anger to kind of take over, then it becomes this cancer that feeds upon the host. And so she's saying, yes, feel your anger. Allow it to be the catalyst towards movement, towards action. Don't just live with anger because it's going to rot you out on the inside. And so I, I take that, I take that with me all the time. I love my anger. It is so important. It is a relevant catalyst and knowing in my body that it's time for me to move into action. But what that action is is completely 
inspired by my understanding of the Dharma. My understanding that I'm not trying to harm myself or harm others. Well said. Probably a pretty good place to leave it. Um, if people want to learn more about you, how can they do that? Yeah, they can go to lesliebooker.com and they can find out what I'm up to. They can join my newsletter, find out where I'll be. Thank you for coming on here. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. You did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> so did you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. Please take a minute to leave us a rating and a review. And if you want to suggest topics or guests for the show, just hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Special thanks to Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the team here at ABC who uh, helped make this thing possible. And remember... We're now on TuneIn. You can hear our new episodes there five days early on Fridays through the end of this year. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Liai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.